everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. You may have noticed that we've adjusted our publication schedule a little bit. So now we are doing the podcast every two weeks and a blog post every two weeks, but they're on alternating weeks. So you'll still get something new every week, but it frees me up to focus on some more really amazing products that I'm creating for you guys. We can talk about those a little bit more at the end. But first things first, I want to dive right into the last of the electrolytes that we have been planning to talk about, sodium and phosphorus. So if you've been listening in, we've done the other major ones, calcium, potassium, etc., And now it's time for sodium, one of the most important you'll follow, and phosphorus, one that you might not think about as much, but is also very, very important. So let's start with phosphorus. One of the things that you might find interesting about phosphorus is that it is the main anion of the intracellular fluid. Most of it you're going to find combined with calcium in bones and teeth. Some is in the muscle. Only 1% of phosphorus is actually in the blood. Why do we care so much about phosphorus? Because it is the main component of ATP. And if you remember your Krebs cycle, you know why ATP is so vitally important. And I know we talk a lot about how The level ranges are going to differ based on what facility you're working at as to what they deem normal. But in a general sense, a FOSS level of 3.0 to 4.5 is considered normal-ish, okay? Another really interesting thing to know about phosphorus that will come in handy all the time is understanding its relationship with calcium. Phosphorus has an inverse relationship with calcium. So if FOSS is up, calcium will be down. If FOSS is down, expect your calcium to be up. One of the things that the NCLEX questions will try to do to trick you is they will be asking you a question about hyperphosphatemia, but they're using the signs and symptoms and the description of hypocalcemia. So as long as you know about that inverse relationship, then you can answer the question. How about some important functions of phosphorus? So we already talked about the most important, which was it is the main component of ATP, adenosine triphosphate. It also is going to play a big role in the conversion of glycogen to glucose. And it is the primary urinary buffer. It does this by bonding with hydrogen to normalize pH. So if you've got a patient who's maybe been hypoglycemic and maybe it's not because of an underlying liver disorder and you can't figure out why their sugars are trending down, you're giving them a little bit of dextrose in their fluids, should be plenty. Take a look at their phosphorus. Maybe their phos is low and they're not converting glycogen to glucose. Okay, let's look at some fun facts about phosphorus. Just when you guys thought phosphorus couldn't get more fun, 
We've got some fun facts. Uh, Something to be aware of is how phosphorus is excreted. It will come out of the body in urine and feces. So you have to be aware that hypophosphatemia could be happening in your patients who've got diarrhea or are diuresing a lot. In the body, you're going to find phosphorus in the form of phosphate, which is part of an organic compound. The rest of it, the inorganic phosphate, is what is measured in the lab. Parathyroid hormone, PTH, that's going to play a big role in your phosphorus levels. PTH decreases the kidney's resorption of phosphorus. You're also going to get phosphorus in through the ingestion of things like dairy products, fish, chicken, nuts, egg yolks, and then things that are low in FOS would be fruits and vegetables. And this will come into play when you have a patient who needs to be on a low FOS diet, which is often the case in patients with renal impairment. If you have to give IV phosphorus to replace, you need to understand that it's not super compatible. So most likely you will need a dedicated line in order to give the FOS. You'll give it slowly via an infusion pump. This is not something that you would ever push. Um, The reason you want to give it slowly is because of that inverse relationship with calcium. So you give it slowly, you gently increase the FOS levels, and the calcium levels gently will decrease. You don't want calcium dropping rapidly because of its function in cardiac contractility. And if you are concerned about phosphorus getting absorbed in the GI tract, then you need to know that it is going to require vitamin D in order to make that happen. And it is going to move into the cell with glucose, much like potassium does. So those are your phosphorus fun facts. Let's talk now a little bit about hyper and hypophosphatemia. Let's talk first about hyperphosphatemia. So this would be that elevated FOS level. So your signs and symptoms, again, you're going to see a lot of signs and symptoms that look like hypocalcemia because if your patient's FOS level is up, their calcium level is down. You'll see twitching, tingling, muscle cramps, numbness. Maybe they're nervous or really irritable. People who are chronically high in FOS could have joint pain, Um, ulcerations of uh, extremities, and conjunctivitis. Very interesting. I did not know that. And let's talk about some of the causes of hyperphosphatemia. It's usually going to be due to renal failure and just that decreased excretion of FOS by the kidneys. It can also be due to taking in too much phosphorus, a phosphorus-containing product. You could also have it with vitamin D toxicity or sarcoidosis. If you've got a patient who's had a trauma, uh, that cell lysis, when those cells break apart, it can cause extra FOS to be released into the bloodstream. So uh, trauma could be a reason. Your patient in rhabdomyolysis, often it could be from a tumor dying, tumor lysis, Um, Even malignant 
hyperthermia can cause your FOSS levels to be elevated. Um, Speaking of cells dying, if your patient has ischemic bowel, it's another big uh, risk for hyperphosphatemia, also hyperkalemia, since we're on the subject. Those cells die and the potassium and the FOSS are living inside the cell and now they're out in the bloodstream where they don't belong. And also it can be due to endocrine imbalances, mainly hypoparathyroidism. So what are we going to do about hyperphosphatemia? Always, always identify and treat the underlying cause. So try to figure out why your patient's FOSS levels are elevated. If it's an unexpected result, you are never going to be making a mistake by repeating a lab test, especially if it's wildly out of whack. You might want to consider holding glucose-containing IV fluids for four to eight hours before drawing your FOSS. Remember that FOSS is going to move into the cell with glucose. So in order to get a really good reading, hold the glucose if you can. Doesn't always happen. You will want to treat any hypocalcemia that's happening. If the patient has taken in too much FOSS because they've gone on a phosphorus-containing product binge, then you can do gastric lavage. You can also take oral medications that bind phosphorus. So if you've got a patient in renal failure and their FOSS levels are consistently high, they will be taking an oral medication to bind the phosphorus. You can give diuretics, again, because FOSS is excreted in the urine. You could give uh, glucose plus insulin. Insulin is going to unlock the cell. Glucose is going to travel into the cell, taking phosphorus with it, just like potassium does. It hitches a ride. And if the FOSS level is critically high, dialysis may be needed. So that's hyperphosphatemia. How about hypophosphatemia when your level is too low? Again, that would be in the range of below 3.0, but again, that just depends on where you work and what they consider normal. They might consider 2.8 normal. So just refer to your facility for those exact levels. So some signs and symptoms of hypophosphatemia. Respiratory depression is one of the biggest ones that I see, certainly one of the most concerning ones. Um, Your patient could have poor muscle control, um, ataxia, a feeling of being weak. Why is that? Remember that FOSS is the main component of ATP. We need ATP. So thinking about it in that way kind of makes sense what symptoms you will see. You could even have an ascending motor paralysis that looks like Guillain-Barre syndrome. The patient could be hypotensive, even could have some myocardial depression. And you may also see some metabolic acidosis with that. Remember that FOSS is going to um, work as a buffer in the body by combining with that hydrogen. Remember we talked about that as one of its primary functions to normalize pH. And what would 
some common causes of hypophosphatemia B. A lot of times you'll see it um, if the patient is not taking in good nutrition, maybe they have an eating disorder or they um, have alcoholism and are not eating a lot of food. Maybe they are diuresing, perhaps they're in diabetic ketoacidosis. Again, that metabolic acidosis can be a sign or symptom of hypophosphatemia. They could um, have chronic antacid ingestion. So that would be something to look at. They might have a vitamin D deficiency. You'll often see low FOS levels in sepsis or hyperparathyroidism. And then also with chronic diarrhea, just because of the increased output. So what are we going to do about a low FOS level? If you said identify and treat the underlying cause, you get an A+. If the, low, if the level is just mildly low, you can increase the oral intake of FOS, giving um, little KFOS or Nutrifos tablets. If it is severe, you're going to give that phosphate via IV. And again, it hogs a line. It's typically not compatible with much. It's given as potassium phosphate or sodium phosphate. So you want to look at your patient's potassium and sodium levels when you're suggesting IV um, phos replacement or even oral phos replacement because KFOS is potassium phos. So if their potassium is elevated, you'd probably go with sodium phosphate. If their sodium levels elevated, you'd go with potassium phosphate. So you have to kind of look at the whole picture there. You're going to watch this patient for neurological problems. You're definitely going to keep a close eye for respiratory depression. You want to encourage them to drink fluids to help prevent kidney stones. And you will assess the skin for petechiae and bruising. One of the things that I did not mention earlier is that hypophosphatemia, um, you will off often see that along with hemolytic anemia. So that, in a nutshell, is phosphorus. It's functions. It's fun facts. Some signs and symptoms of high and low, as well as its common causes and what you're going to do about it. So let's move on to sodium. Sodium is a positively charged ion, and it is the most abundant electrolyte in the ECF. It's going to play a massive role in neuromuscular function, and you'll often see it bound up with chloride, sodium chloride. Typically, what's considered a normal level is around 135-145-ish. Again, refer to your facility for exact parameters. But for the most part, if you've got a sodium level less than 110, this is super serious. Even getting down into the 120s, your patient could very likely have neuro changes. But if it's getting down to 110, that patient is in serious trouble. So... High alert there for hyponatremia, which we'll go over in a little bit more detail here in a bit. First, let's talk about some important functions of sodium. Well, we already mentioned that it plays a key role in neuromuscular function. It also acts as a water magnet. Remember, water follows salt. If you remember that from your 
basic physiology classes. So it's going to also play a key role in osmolality. And sodium also helps regulate acid-base balance by binding to chloride and bicarbonate. Now let's move on to our fun facts about sodium. So as we mentioned before, most of it is found in the extracellular fluid or the ECF. Only a very small amount of the body's sodium lives inside the cell. Most of the sodium in our bodies we get through dietary sources and it's about two grams a day that will satisfy this requirement which is equal to about one teaspoon of table salt. It's going to be absorbed through the GI tract and it's eliminated in a few different ways through sweat, urine, and feces. So lots of different ways that you can lose sodium. The sodium balance through the body is maintained through several processes, including the RAAS, um, thirst, the regulation of ADH, GFR, there's atrial natriuretic peptide or ANP, osmotic pressure, and the sodium potassium pump. So the body uses all these ways to keep the sodium levels maintained because having a proper sodium level is that important. It is one of the most important electrolytes when it comes to maintaining adequate water volume in the body and plays a big role in regulating blood pressure. So as your body's water volume increases, blood pressure will also increase, which is one of the reasons why patients with hypertension are advised to follow a low-sodium diet. Now, when you hear people talk about normal saline, the reason it's called normal saline is because it's considered to have the same osmolality as the human body, and that normal saline is that 0.9% sodium chloride. So there's a little fact about why it's considered normal. And you're going to find sodium in high concentrations in the saliva, bile, and other GI secretions. So now let's move on and talk about hyper and hyponatremia. So for hypernatremia, this is when your sodium levels get above that 145-ish and or the serum osmolality is greater than 300 milliosmoles. Some of these signs are going to be neurological, so twitching, seizures, irritation, confusion, irritability. I guess irritation and irritability are the same thing. I meant to say agitation, confusion, and irritability. Also, muscle weakness, being very weak. Patient could even be in a coma from having too high of a sodium level. Patient may feel increased thirst. And you will probably see signs of dehydration. You know, that low-grade fever, the poor skin turgor, that rapid pulse, etc. So some common causes of an elevated sodium level. Usually, it's caused by an increase in intake when renal disease is present or in the, the presence of large water losses due to vomiting, diarrhea, or diuresis. It can be due to decreased oral intake due to nausea. Um, maybe the patient isn't able to swallow well, their confusions. It can also be due to your patient maybe just not taking in enough fluids. Um, maybe they're nauseous. Maybe they have a swallowing problem. 
you know, some dysphagia from a stroke. Maybe they had a stroke in an area of the brain that um, around the hypothalamus, or perhaps they're simply confused. You will also see hypernatremia in diabetes insipidus, which, if you recall, leads to very big water losses via diuresis as a result of that lack of ADH. You'll also see hypernatremia in Cushing syndrome and hyperaldosteronism. So what are you going to do about hypernatremia? Of course, first step, identify and treat the underlying cause. You want to encourage PO intake of water. If the patient's not swallowing, maybe they are really sick and on a ventilator, but they've got an OG tube or an NG tube or a PEG tube, you'll provide free water flushes every you know four, six hours or so. That's going to help dilute the sodium and normalize those levels. We do this a lot in the ICU. That's probably the first thing that we do to treat a high sodium level. You would also want to consider switching to hypotonic IV fluids like half-NS or D5W. You would definitely want to keep an eye on their daily weights, their I's and O's. If the patient has diabetes insipidus and that's what's causing their hyponatremia, you can use vasopressin, which is a continuous drip. It can also be given via injection for people that need to be on it for long term. And let's see, you would also want to treat any hyperaldosteronism um, as that might relate to its cause. Um, if the patient has a tumor and it's causing problems up there in the hypothalamus area, then surgery or radiation may be called for in those cases. Now, how about hyponatremia? This is what we see probably a little more, or that is certainly more serious. And that's just because of the neurological damage that can occur when sodium levels are low. So a hyponatremia is any sodium level below 135 or whatever your facility deems the low end of normal. You're going to start to panic when it's below 110, but you're going to be getting pretty darn concerned when you're in the 120s as well. Some signs and symptoms of hyponatremia, you'll have decreased urine-specific gravity, your patient's going to be lethargic, probably nauseous, they could be vomiting, be very weak, your pulse will likely be rapid, um, you'll have muscle spasms twitching, diminished deep tendon reflexes, so a lot of neurological kinds of symptoms, even headache, behavior change seizures, and coma in severe cases. Um, you could also have diarrhea, hyperactive bowel sounds, and complete loss of appetite as well. But the symptoms that are the most concerning are those that are neurological in nature. That is because hyponatremia is going to cause cerebral edema. And the reason for that is because when sodium levels in the bloodstream are low, the water is going to leave the, the vessel space, the intravascular space, in order to balance out that sodium level. So the water is going to leave and it's going to enter the cell, thereby causing the cell to basically swell. And that is how you get cerebral 
edema, and all the awful neurological side effects that go along with that. If you're interested in learning a lot more about hyponatremia, I believe I have a whole podcast about that alone. So check that out. Definitely there's a um, blog post on the Straight A Nursing Student website about it that we're just going over the highlights right here. And let's talk now about some common causes of hyponatremia. So you're usually going to have it caused by a lot of water intake. That's usually what I see in the ICU. You could have um, it caused by increased sodium excretion or decreased sodium intake. We had a patient once long time ago who had some behavior problems and drank something like five gallons of water or something like that and was thereafter in a coma from the cerebral edema. So hyponatremia is certainly something very serious. If your patient is on a low-sodium diet for their blood pressure and they're also taking diuretics, maybe they've got a little bit of congestive heart failure, keep an eye on their sodium levels because they could become low, so you definitely want to keep an eye out for that. Also, another common cause, excessive sweating, high-output GI drainage, and cystic fibrosis. Your patient could also get hyponatremia from adrenal insufficiency that leads to salt wasting. They may have, again, uh, congestive heart failure. Maybe they've got some nephrotic syndrome, SIADH, or cirrhosis. All of those things can contribute to low sodium levels. And then there's psychogenic polydipsia, where it's a it's like a mental disorder, a mental illness where they just want to drink, 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 drink. Um, a lot of times you'll see that with a, a tumor that's affecting, um, I believe it's, I'm going to say the pituitary area, um, and the patient will have this overwhelming urge to drink water to the point where you have to turn off the water in their room because they'll get up, they'll drink out of the toilet. They're that thirsty, or you know, they think they're that thirsty. So those are some common causes of hyponatremia. Now, of course, what are you going to do about it? Well, if you said identify and treat the underlying cause, you get a gold star as always. You'll definitely want to monitor their daily weights, their I's and O's, monitor them for neuro changes. You're going to be watching them like a hawk, watching for any confusion, agitation, seizures, anything like that. You'll be checking labs probably pretty regularly, um, probably more more often than once per day if their sodium level is pretty low, maybe Q6 hours or so. Um, you'll want to check sodium chloride, their serum osmolality, their glucose levels. If it's a mild form of hyponatremia, you can treat that by restricting fluids or by increasing sodium intake. I will tell you that patients on fluid restriction hate it, and it's very hard to get them to comply, and they will be uh, tricky and often manipulative to try to get more water. So you have to come up with a really solid system for kind of parsing out their fluid allowance over the course of the day. I find that um, 
talking with them in advance about how they want to divvy up their water allowance. Maybe they want two-thirds of it during the day and a third of it at night while they're mostly sleeping. You know, it kind of just depends on them. I will take, it depends on what their fluid restriction amount is. If it's low, like 1,500 for a 24-hour period, so we'll discuss, okay, you're going to get 1,000 of that during the day, and then you can have 500 on night shift. So 1,000 of it between 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., and then 500 between 7 p.m. and the following morning at 7 a.m. So oftentimes I'll just fill up one of those pitchers that's about a liter and take that into the room, and that's it, and that's what they get. And they can, if they're a responsible person, you can just trust them to drink responsibly, (laughs) drink their water responsibly. But if they're confused, then you definitely want to give that to them in measured doses and make sure that all the other nurses on the unit and the aides and the volunteers and the physical therapist and everybody that goes into that room knows that that patient is on fluid restriction because they will ask every single person that goes into that room for a cup of water. And usually it's no big deal and we get patients cups of water all the time and they're counting on that. So just make sure you communicate that well. You will also, um, if you're treating a severe case of hyponatremia, then you're going to correct it with hypertonic saline, and you're going to correct it very slowly. Hypertonic saline is a high, high, high alert medication. Correcting a sodium level too quickly causes very bad things to happen in the brain, and it can lead to what's called locked-in syndrome. So if you're interested in that, you can look that up. So whenever I hang hypertonic saline, I... Do not ever want anyone to come in and cause any bolusing of that fluid to occur. Typically, its max rate of infusion is 30 mils an hour, and you will be checking their serum osmolality, their serum sodiums, probably every four, I want to say it's about every four hours for a patient on a hypertonic solution. I will label the pump that it's running through, that it's hypertonic. I will put high alert stickers on the IV tubing. I will um, tape off with sterile tape the port that a IV piggyback would connect into if someone were to go in and hang an IV piggyback. I don't want any of that to happen. I don't want any other fluids running with my hypertonic saline. I want a dedicated line and I'm going to label the snot out of it. The patient may also get mannitol, which is another hypertonic solution. And with mannitol, it's an IV push and it's given every, usually it's every four to six hours. It just, it really depends. You will be checking a serum sodium and a serum osmolality before every dose of that mannitol. So you need to get your timing figured out if you know lab's going to take an hour and a half to get your result back, then you need to draw that lab in a reasonable amount of time so that you can administer the mannitol as prescribed, etc. If your hyponatremia is caused by SIADH, 
syndrome of inappropriate antidiuretic hormone, then you can address the tumor or the medications that are causing that condition. So that is sodium in a nutshell and phosphorus in a nutshell. And thank you for hanging in there and getting through these electrolytes. I think we're pretty much done with all of those. Our next podcast will be on doing a thorough and efficient head-to-toe assessment. And then we also have some other really fun things happening. If you are a planner slash organizer type person and you love making lists and love really keeping on top of your nursing school schedule as well as your life outside of school if you have one, then you might want to check out the nursing student planner that I have available on the website at www.straightanursingstudent.com. The new 2018 versions are out and they are absolutely incredible. It is a printable file, but I do provide instructions for a way to easily get that printed and coiled together so that you have a planner that you can put your whole schedule in, make all your lists of your assignments that are due, your um, to-do list for home, your to-do list for school, has all kinds of great features. So those new 2018 ones are now available. Very excited about that. And what else was I going to tell you about? I think that was about it. I just wanted to share that with you guys. If you're interested in electrolytes and you want a little study sheet, go to the website. You can look in the shop area, I believe. There's these little one sheets on each of the electrolytes that we've talked about in this series. And it's just a quick snapshot, just like this podcast was, about the highlights and the signs and symptoms and the causes and what you do about it. Really handy information to have for clinical. So that's it, guys. Have a great day. I hope you found a way to do something joyful while you were listening to this podcast. And come back in a couple weeks and we'll talk about head-to-toe assessments. This podcast is brought to you by StraightAnursingStudent.com. Copyright Mo Media.